Welcome to this week's podcast from Faith Christian Church. For more details, check out faithcc.com.au. We hope you enjoy this message. Can I challenge you a bit today? See, I, I don't want to just preach another message. I could do that back in Ipswich. But I really want to challenge you about letting this message live beyond lunchtime. I'm serious. I want you to be challenged by this message because I'm living this message, trying to. And our church at Ipswich is trying to as well. So what I'm going to ask you to do right at the very beginning, right now, is if you've come with someone, can you hold their hand? Because I need the Holy Spirit. Do you? I need the Holy Spirit. And then I'm going to take you on a journey. So Holy Spirit, would you come right now? And would you open our hearts widely that we can receive your word? And Father, could you help me articulate the words so that we would walk out of here with those words so deeply entrenched in our heart that we won't be the same again? I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Last year, 2018, was the centenary of the end of World War I. Now, World War I was probably and still remains the most vicious war that probably has existed. From literally from Turkey to Africa, from France to Belgium, two huge trenches, thousands of kilometres long, and the, the brutality of that, that warfare has not been seen since. Do you know that Australia, as a young nation, lost 61,000 individuals? Now, can I put that into context so we can understand it? That one in every four households lost someone. Now, that means if you're walking down the street and you look at every fourth household, one person or one relative or one family member from that household was killed in World War I. But it's worse than that in that most of those families, the majority of those families, would never, ever even go to the graveside of that loved one. It was not possible to travel from Australia to the Western, the Western Europe theatres of war. So can you imagine losing a loved one, not even knowing where for many, many years that body was buried and never being able to visit the graveside as well? So it was a horrendous time in our nation. But what people don't realise that coming out of 1917 into that final year of 1918, we just assumed that everything was going the Allies' way. And by the 11th of November 1918, when the war was ended, hey, we got victory. But in fact, it was very much different. Coming into 1918, most of the British generals felt that they were firstly losing the war, and secondly, the war could go on to 1921 or 1922. Can you imagine the casualty rates from that? And so all of a sudden, coming into 1918, the circumstances changed dramatically and Australia was involved in that change. And here's what happened. John Monash, the general in charge of the Australian forces, was appointed to oversee all the Australian divisions. And he was a man who was a lawyer by trade. He had a master's of engineering. He had an arts degree as well. Not a professional soldier, but a meticulous strategic thinker. Meticulous. 
And he was waiting for his opportunity to plan a battle which he felt, if we won, would be a catalyst to winning the war. He, he had spent months just analysing the battlefield and felt that there was one town, Monts and Quinlan, and if they could win that, they would then literally, a domino effect would occur, and they would win the war within eight months, and people laughed at him. He worked on this plan, and if you read the terms of the plan, it's an amazing thing. It was involving the, the Australian Flying Corps, tanks, dummy, dummy, you know, um, advances. It was meticulously planned down for every hour. And so finally, he presented this plan to the British generals. And eyewitnesses say that when he presented the plan, the British generals behind him scoffed in amusement. They literally scoffed. And as he's presenting the plan, he knows that the plan can work, but it has one major flaw. And here's the flaw. With all these battles, because they're really just on flat ground, trench to trench, he knew that at any time, if the Germans would literally reinforce their line, they could halt that battle like that, and the battle would be lost. So as he's presenting this plan to all the British generals, Haig, who was in charge of all the British army at the time, a very astute man, he looks at the plan and says, but General Monash, there's a flaw in it. Monash knows what's coming. And he says, at any point in time, Monash, this is what's going to happen. On your plan, if the Germans reinforce any position because of the battlefield being so flat, then the Australians will be literally entrenched in mud and the battle will be lost then and there. And there's silence in the room. And then finally, Monash leans forward and in the most famous statement made, he says what I'm trying to say to you today. He says, I've thought about it. He said, I've got a solution for that moment. And here it is. He says, in every Australian battalion, there will be men when the advance is stopped or the enemy is about to make a breakthrough, will perform an act of bravery. Did you get that? There'll be an individual, someone in the Australian battalion. I don't know who it will be, but I know these Australian soldiers. I know that at that moment, when everything seems lost, there'll be someone who will perform an act of bravery and it's going to place the Australians back on the offensive and more than that, it's going to inspire squads of brave men to achieve extraordinary deeds against the odds. And Haig stands back and he says, I believe you. He said, you're going to have charge of not only the Australians, but the Canadians, the Americans, and the British as well. We must take Mons and Quinlan. And so the battle commenced the next day. Surely, this is what happened. One hour into that battle, one hour, only an hour, all of a sudden, the Germans reinforced their line. Four machine gun nests were quickly set up. Reinforcements rushed to this particular spot and the Australian 33rd Division was completely stopped in their tracks. They sent a runner back and the runner was given the message from the commanding officer of the 33rd Division saying, we're stopped and we can't go forward. And before that message reached Monash, Private George Cartwright, just an Aussie bloke from Western Victoria, 
leaps out of the trench that he was in at the time. He's got his rifle, a single-shot rifle, on his shoulder. As he's running, he says he thinks about the fact that he's got these grenades in a pouch, but he's right-handed and can't throw left-handed. And as he's firing, he's, as he's firing, he takes the grenades out, puts them in his left hand, and underarms them towards the German machine gun nest. And at that moment, onlookers say, the Australians leapt up, cheering like they were at a football match, and followed him. And that one extraordinary act of bravery turned that battle at that point. One man doing one act of extraordinary bravery, no history of it before, never spoke about being brave. No one even recognised that he had a brave bone in his body. And then over the next 48 hours, it happened on three further occasions. And on those three further occasions, Robert Macia, who's a private, Sergeant Albie Lowenson and Lieutenant Edgar Towner did exactly the same thing. At exactly these moments, an Aussie got out of the trench and made that battle into a situation where they could actually go forward. Four Victoria Crosses, one in 48 hours, Monson Quinlan taken, the battle turned. Australia, at the very forefront of that battle, were never defeated again. And World War I, as Monash said, was finished in eight months. Got out of their trench and performed an act of bravery. I want to be brave. But so do you. I want to be brave in my everyday life, and so do you. You see, when I read about the biblical characters that have been told to be strong and courageous, do you know what it does for me? It resonates with me. There is something deep within me that says, I want to be like that. I want to be a, a person of character and integrity and I want to be secure. I want to be honourable. I want to be a man of conviction and purpose. So do you. I want to display this courage and bravery in my ordinary life every single day. I want to be someone who's not afraid to live life pleasing God. Just like Paul says in Thessalonians, he, said, he says, look, I'm not here to please man, but to please God who tests our heart. And you know what I've discovered, friends? Can I be really honest about this? Every day requires courage. Every day requires bravery. It requires me to be brave in my home, in our workplace, in my relationships. Hey, can I tell you, I need to be brave when no one's even watching. And this courage, this bravery, I, I need it. But how do you get it? And what is it? Rather than just be to another message at church, what, what, what does it mean? How do we individuals right now go from this place and say, God, I hear him, but I want to be brave. Well, here's what I think about courage. Here's what the research actually says about courage. To be courageous, I think you've got to start small. Don't you reckon? Yeah. To be brave, it's these little acts of bravery to start off with. Yeah. Bravery, I think, is acquired. 
little by little, step by step, act by act, moment by moment, opportunity by opportunity, like Lego building blocks, piece by piece. And do you know what else I found out about bravery? It's lonely. It's lonely. It's individualistic. I wish I could live my bravery through your bravery and not be brave. It's individualistic. It's that moment of unity where conviction and fear collide, don't they? Conviction and fear, they collide. And as a result of that, the other aspect of that unified collision is, am I going to take some action? And action is just stepping out into the fire of bravery because at that collision moment between opportunity and fear, somehow you've overridden the fear and stepped into the opportunity. That's why I think Churchill said, it's the human quality that guarantees all others. So can I be clear this morning what I'm really saying to you? Courage and bravery for you and I, in a really practical sense, is leaving this place and knowing God is going to place you into an opportunistic situation and whisper in your ear, be brave. And it could happen in the foyer. Seriously. And if you think it's going to happen before tomorrow, it probably will. Because the interesting thing about God is that when we, at the end of this service, say, God, I want to be brave, he says, okay. It's not even complicated. He says, okay. Now, what I'm going to do, I'm going to put you in those opportunistic situations that I've been planning since the beginning of time. You just got to be brave. Yes. Oh, it was a good message. I didn't didn't mean this quickly. It was going to happen. Can I have time to pray about it? Maybe even fast. I mean, but no, 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 God's going to say, no, I'm, I'm going to respond to your prayer. You know what I've discovered? Sometimes, because God knows us so well, the start of our journey of courage are these small, usually unseen and unheard by others acts of bravery that propel us to increase our confidence towards the moment that God has really been planning for us when we step into a situation that's going to make a significant eternal difference. Great courage, friends, in great individuals, which you are, starts with small acts of courage in lesser individuals like you and I who dream of greatness. Don't you dare don't dream of greatness. Dream of greatness. Greatness was put into you. It just takes bravery to inherit it. So what I'm going to do very briefly this morning is take you on a journey of how I see an individual who discovered to be brave. I'm going to take you through just three little examples, and they get bigger over time. The first one, when he steps into this this tiny one, perhaps, but then it goes on, and we're going to see how, how generally courage works. I'm going to talk about a man called Jonathan. Do you know Jonathan? Come on, the 11 o'clock service must know Jonathan. Saul's son, David's friend, you know the story. And here is a, 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 a man that through these small acts of bravery in his life eventually leads to this mighty act of bravery. So I'm going to show you these acts as we go forward. So let's look at the first act of bravery. This first act of courage is really interesting. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 19. And it's 
the time in a room. So come into this room with me, will you? Come into this room where we see Saul bad-mouthing David. In fact, he's not just bad-mouthing David. He's saying, let's kill him. I need someone to step up and kill him. I need you to assassinate him. And then we find Jonathan, who is Saul's son, takes an incredible step of courage. And in 1 Samuel 19 and the verses behind me, it says this, that Jonathan saying many good things about David. Stop. That takes courage. Come on, help me out. In the midst of the king criticizing David, the king's son steps forward and says, hey, hold on a minute. Let me tell you about David. The king must not sin against his servant, David. He has never done anything to harm you. He's always helped you in any way he could. Have you forgotten about the time that he risked his life to kill the Philistine giant and how the Lord brought a great victory to all of Israel as a result? You were certainly happy about it then, hey? Come on. Why would you then murder an innocent man like David? There's no reason at all. Hey, friends, can I tell you, this is a profound act of courage. Can you understand this? This is not a nice little story. This is a man who's taking a stand against the king, but taking a stand against his father. Jonathan has learned that courage is based on this conviction that you've got to hold deeply. Here's the conviction. I'm not going to allow you to criticize my friend. I'm not going to allow you to gossip against my friend. I'm not going to allow you to do anything against my friend. See, no conviction, no courage. It's a moral quality. It's a matter of willpower. It's not a chance gift, I wish it was, that's just given to us like our natural ability to do certain sports well because of our body shape. It's not that at all. It's a trained response. I don't like the phrase, be strong and courageous. I'd rather just be strong and courageous and give it to me as a gift. Don't you reckon? I'm happy to get it as a gift. I mean, I'll, I've, I'll even be still for more than 30 seconds and you can give it to me. See, the word I have trouble with is the be. Be strong and courageous. See, courage doesn't drop out of the sky upon you. You've got to be strong and courageous. Recently, I had the opportunity to meet one of the most profound leaders I could possibly spend time with. And it happened really by accident. I met a, um, a woman in London by the name of Nikki Marflett. I went to one of her lectures, and you wouldn't even know the name, but she is the first female governor of a maximum security prison in London, in Great Britain, actually. And she is the governor of Her Majesty's Prison, Woodhill. It's high security. It's got 1,300 male inmates, and they are the cream of the crop. That's where the terrorists are held. That's where, I mean, they're the cream of the crop, if you know what I mean. And here's Nikki Marflett, who stands all of five foot five. I don't know what that's in centimetres. But she's just a small woman, and she is just, she's tough. And she was talking about courage, and somehow she and I got to meet each other at the end of the lecture, and we had about 20 minutes together what had happened was I just happened to walk out of the building at the same time as her going to the same tube station. So we just spent 20 minutes. And I, you know how you get with someone and you want to ask this question, but you open your mouth and something stupid comes out. <laughs> Has that ever happened to you? I mean, I'm serious. You, you've thought about it. You really have. You've thought about this thing, but then something dumb comes out. 
So she's just spoken on courage, and I am walking with her, and here I am, an ex-lawyer, I think fairly intelligent, and I say, well, how do you be courageous? Duh. I reckon she was thinking, I just spent an hour telling you how to do that. <laughs> and she told me this story. She said, well, I, I think I became, I think I was trained. I think I discovered bravery by being trained to be brave when I was in charge of the Scotland Yard riot squad. And she tells a story. She said, Mark, what we used to train was this. We would line up the riot squad. I was in charge. So I stood over on the edge with my line of male and female officers. And we'd be on our back foot. Just be like this, almost resting. We'd have the helmets and the vest and the, and the shield. But then when people came against us, I would then shout two words three times. I'd say, courage up. Courage up. Courage up. And we'd go from the back foot to the front foot. And we, in that instant, became courageous. I can imagine, friends, that Jonathan couraged up at the moment that his father started to criticize David. I reckon he went from the back foot to the front foot. Really? I imagine that he's heard this before. And this time he's thinking, when that happens, when my dad starts to criticize Jonathan, this is what I'm going to say. I'm going to rehearse that situation. I'm going to learn the lines over and over again. But when Saul says it, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go from the back foot to the front foot and I'm going to courage up. See, sometimes the hardest acts of courage we have to perform are with people that are the most closest to us. Sometimes you've got to courage up, go from the back foot to the front foot. Can you imagine that room when he couraged up? I recently read a book by Robert Coles called Lives of Moral Leaders. And he tells the story that when he was an eight-year-old boy in the south of America... He said he and his mum went to the library and they would borrow books because she wanted to create in him a love of books. And Robert Coles tells the story that after that she checked the books out and handed over a library card and was packing the books in a bag and she was just turning to go away, an Afro-American woman came to the counter and said to the librarian, I would like to teach my children to read help them to read. I was wondering if I could get a library card and I could borrow some books. And the librarian looked at this Afro-American woman in the 1950s in the south of America and simply said, we don't loan books to people like you. At that moment, Robert Cole says, I was only eight, but the vivid memory of this incident stayed, has now stayed with me for decades. He said, I, I know that my mother had turned around to leave, but she'd heard this conversation taking place. And then she came back to the librarian and stood in front of the librarian and said, use my card, ma'am. Would you trust me enough to be able to use my card? And then looked at the librarian and said, whatever book she wants, my card is sufficient. But at the same time, something took place, Robert Coles says, that when she is saying this, she's gripping his hand a little tighter. 
squeezing it. And he said, I felt like I was part of my mum's courage. Sometimes I can sense God squeezing my hand and encouraging me to courage up and be brave. The second act of courage for Jonathan is an amazing bit of courage. David now, 1 Samuel 23, if you want to read the story later on, he's in the wilderness and he's just helped out a town. And unfortunately, the town that he helped out now turns against him and has betrayed him to Saul. Who's been betrayed? We've all had that feeling, haven't we? And he's been betrayed by that town. He feels like he's stabbed in the back. But then Jonathan does something for David. The Bible says he came to him. It says, in fact, in 1 Samuel 23, 16 and 17, I want you to note these words. It says this, that Jonathan went to find David. Courage is B, isn't it? It's not sitting back. Courage is, I'm going to find David. I just know there's something wrong. I just sense there's something wrong. He's my friend. There's something wrong. I'm going to find him. And then when he finds him, here's what happens. He encourages him to stay strong in his faith in God. And then he says this, don't be afraid, David. My father will never find you. Listen to this. You are going to become king of Israel. Here's what's brave about this. He does what few of us do. David repeats, sorry, Jonathan repeats to David the narrative of God's plan for him and his life. Do you know it takes courage to put aside your dream and speak the dream of God over someone else? Have you done that recently? Oh, but Mark, I can't be brave. Yes, you can. You can encourage another human being. You can speak God's narrative over their life. And why does it take courage to do that? Because to know about God's dream in their life, you've got to get close to them. It's called proximity, and proximity takes courage. I can picture Jonathan saying, hey, I believe in David, so I'm going to pray for David. I believe in David, so I'm going to spend time with David. I'm going to think about David. I'm going to inquire about the things that really matter to David. So when he's down, when he's walking through the valley of the shadow of death, his mate is going to be with him. And I'm going to speak God's narrative when he's forgot it. And when he's in a wilderness, and friends, are we sometimes in a wilderness? Yes, we are. I'm going to remind him that he is the next king of Israel. He is the next king. Hold on a minute. Shouldn't Jonathan be that? Direct line from Saul. But I'm going to put aside my dream and speak your dream, David, over your life. See, the greatest act of encouragement is when you don't talk about yourself, but you talk about the dream over someone else's life. You choose that person over you. See, when was the last time you did that? It takes courage to call forth something dormant in someone else's life. That's courage. Because what you're saying, friends, listen, is I want to lift you higher than myself. Oh, wow. And then something happens. So we've got that first act of courage where he, he almost, it's a conscious will. He steps up. He steps into it. He steps up. The second one was when he believes in someone and speaks over their life. 
but it's leading to the final act of massive courage. 1 Samuel 23. By this stage, Jonathan, in the, in the scheme of the story, has every reason to leave Saul. Saul, by this stage, is so anti-David, so almost against the things of God. Jonathan chooses to stay. This huge battle takes place, friends, between the Philistines and the Israelites, and Saul is fighting the battle, and there's a moment in the battle where Jonathan is with his father, as are with his brothers, and they are killed by the Philistines. Now, you may say, well, where's the courage, Mark? Well, here's the courage, friends. Jonathan stayed. Sometimes just staying is the most courageous thing you can do. Sometimes your greatest act of courage is staying in the face of adversity. You stay when it's tough. You stay when it's uncomfortable. You stay when it hurts. You stay when you even don't feel like it. You know what I mean? I don't feel like that. Yes, I will, because it's called courage. You stay when you know it's going to cost you. You stay when it means sacrifice. You even stay when others don't. Courage is staying the course, even if it means you lose your life because you stay with the king when you're surrounded by the Philistines. For those of you that were born after the 11th of September 2001, you probably won't ever, well, you won't ever experience what I'm going to say now, in that there are certain moments in my life I know exactly where I was. On the 11th of September 2001, when terrorist planes crashed into the World Trade Centers in New York, I know exactly where I was. I was driving my girls to school. As usual, I was complaining about the traffic, and I was also fending off my girls' criticism that I was listening to the ABC News. You know what it's like? Who's been there? And then all of a sudden, these garbled reports came out of the news. There was something about plane crashes, and we all now know what happened. There's a story that I want to tell you that moves me every time I think about it. As you know, many of the fire brigades that we call fire brigades, in New York they call them engines and ladders. But all the fire men and women race to the scene and there's many pictures of those fire men and women going into the, into the World Trade Centers and up the stairs, fully loaded with packs. One of the firemen who came from Engine 62 and Ladder 32 in the Bronx was a man called Michael Francis Joseph Lynch. He was Irish and he was a Catholic. Can you tell by the... the I reckon I love that name. It's simply Michael Francis Joseph Lynch. They've coated all covered, haven't they? They've got an archangel there, a, a pope there, and, uh, you know, <laughs> God's dad. So I reckon Irish Catholics, if you're an Irish Catholic, you know what I mean. The building collapsed and Michael Lynch didn't come out. About nine months later, on the 21st of March, 2002, there was a ramp ceremony, which you'll see behind me. It's when the remains of Michael Lynch were discovered and police and fire men and women escorted his body to the medical examiner. At that stage, they thought that the body would be released to the family fairly quickly and the funeral would take place. You've got to understand, this is now nine months after the incident. 
But after another six months, there was nothing. And by this stage, the relationship between the medical examiner and the family was very, very fraught. Another few months went by till finally the mayor, as a result of being lobbied by the family, arranged a meeting between the family and the medical examiner. And the family were angry. They wanted the body released. So they appeared before the medical examiner in a private meeting. And the medical examiner said, look... I'm going to release the bo your body of your son and your brother this afternoon, but I need to tell you why it's been delayed. The first thing we try to do is we realise that it may have been Michael Lynch because of some of the material that we're able to get, but that's not good enough. We must get a DNA match. That's fair enough, isn't it? But he said we couldn't get a DNA match because the DNA was mixed and confused. You've got to understand this is way back in 2001, 2002. And he said, we've got experts from all over the world to come in and try to decipher the fact that the DNA was just, well, in my layman's terms, just didn't make sense. It, just, it seemed to have male and female attached to it, and we couldn't, we couldn't work it out until finally an expert figured out what had happened. We then started to pit, pit, put together the picture of what happened to Michael. We, we actually got some eyewitnesses. We've got some accounts, and here's what happened. Michael was way up in one of the towers and he was coming back down because all had been lost. And he was carrying his equipment. It appears that he took his equipment off because a young lady, a young woman, was in the stairwell crying, scared, and wouldn't move. Despite the fact that his colleagues and even the people surrounding him said, you must go, you must go, Michael said, I can't, I've got to stay. And the last picture that we see of Michael through the eyewitness accounts is Michael picking up this, this woman and starting to carry her down and then the building collapsed. What happened because of the incredible heat, their DNA fused. But we know this, when he should have left, he stayed. And he tried to carry this lady out and died because of it. In the room next door, I'm about to talk to that young woman's family because they've got the same concerns as you have. You see, I've discovered that being brave is a necessary act that we have to do. Your church needs you to be brave. Are you hearing me? Are you hearing me? The kingdom of God cannot be advanced by timidity. It's advanced by courage. It's advanced by your courage. But let's take it to a micro level. You need to know that courage is required for your family, for your spouse, for your children, for your workplace, for your friends, for your school friends. It's those little acts of courage. It's that encouragement to speak someone's narrative over their life. It's sometimes staying. And as you walk from this place, do you know what I'm hoping for you? Do you know what I'm believing for you? I'm believing this will be more than a message. But just someone that's just preaching on a Sunday morning to, I want the word brave to be etched so deeply in your heart that when opportunity collides with fear, and it will, and you're in that trench and you're thinking, how do I do this? Then I'm praying that you'll remember the story of courage up. 
and you'll go from the back foot to the front foot and you'll feel the squeeze of God's hand and you'll leap out. And then all of a sudden that collision that will take place between the opportunity God has placed for you and fear, fear will be eroded and all of a sudden action will take place and you will step into the next stage of what God courageously will be cheering for you to do next time. Bow your heads. Father, God, right now, right across this room, from the right to the left, oh God, I pray with all my heart that you would speak to us in such a profound way that courage is etched, written on our hearts today. That we'll walk from this place and be brave. That when we put our head on the pillow tonight, we'll think, be brave. When we wake up in the morning, the first two words that would enter our spirit would be, be brave. And we'll be looking for opportunities that you've put before us now. So I pray over this whole auditorium full of people, God, help us be brave. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast from Faith Christian Church. To stay up to date, check us out at our website, faithcc.com.au.